Romans chapter 11, our topic is the future of Israel, and I thought in light of the, uh, the wicked war against Israel by Hamas, a group that uh, is uh, satanic to the core, and we pray for Israel to win, and uh, we hope that they will uh, get the job done. We're going to talk about uh, the future of Israel from Romans chapter 11, a very interesting passage. <clears throat> I'm not going to get to everything today. I'm going to leave a lot of good application, Lord willing, for next week. But today we'll get to the main things. And let me just read the first 12 verses. I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. <clears throat> for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he pleaseth God against Israel, saying, Lord... They have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so, even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works, otherwise grace is no, more, no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace, otherwise work is no longer work. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that should not see and ears that should not hear, to this very day. <clears throat> and David says, Let your table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see, and bow their necks down always. I say that. Have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now if their fall is riches for the world, and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? And then I'm just going to read 15, because we're going to talk about 15. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what shall their acceptance be? But life from the dead. And then... Um, Verse 26, and so all Israel shall be saved as it is written. And then he quotes the Old Testament. Today, due to the influence of dispensationalism, which is extremely popular, its influence is still very popular among evangelicals. The prophetic picture for national Israel or ethnic Israel has been greatly distorted. One reason is that dispensationalism basically teaches that God has two separate peoples. The church and ethic Israel, and therefore views the future of Israel apart from her inclusion in Christ's church and a return to the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we want to look at Paul's inspired teaching regarding Israel in his day and God's future plans for ethnic Israel, and that's what Paul's going to talk about, <clears throat> and see why Paul raises the question has God cast away his people? So that's what we're going to be looking at today. Now in the Epistle to Romans, we have Paul's most complete presentation and defense of the gospel. It's written quite late. Galatians is written very early. This is like an expansive version of Galatians, although he's not really dealing with the problem of the Judaizers in this epistle. In his defense of justification by faith alone, Paul has condemned Pharisaical Judaism, which, by the way, is what the vast majority of ethnic Israel professed and defended. 
Okay, modern Jews don't teach, it's not a religion of the Old Testament, it's not a religion of the Bible, it's the Talmud. The 35 volumes of the Babylonian Talmud, it's Pharisaical Judaism, it's not. So when you hear this, we follow the Judeo-Christian tradition, no, we follow the Christian tradition, and modern Jews have been influenced by the Christian tradition, uh, because if you read the Talmud, it's quite evil. Virtually the whole political and religious leadership of Israel rejected Jesus. <clears throat> if one became a Christian, one would be excommunicated from the local synagogue. And you remember the man who was born blind and he was healed, and his parents were excommunicated, and he was excommunicated for simply acknowledging that Jesus healed him. One's political career was over as well. After the resurrection of Jesus, there were only 120 disciples in the upper room. That's not very many when you consider he preached for three and a half years and he had 70 evangelists going through Israel preaching as well. It is only after Pentecost that progress is made, yet soon the Jewish church will be severely persecuted, as we see with Paul before he was a Christian. The Jews' embrace of salvation by the works of the law has turned them against their own Messiah and his church. Christ is a stumbling block. They don't believe in salvation by grace alone or by faith alone. <clears throat> the rejection and murder of Christ, which was greatly aggravated by their allegiance with pagan Rome to accomplish it, resulted in their rejection by God. The nation, Jesus said, would be destroyed and the kingdom would be handed over to the multinational church, which is Christ's body. Okay, Israel as a nation, with borders and its own laws and everything, no longer holds any significance in prophecy. I'll go into that, Lord willing, more next week as I talk about the passages they use. The Bible talks about a great future for Israel, but it doesn't say anything about them becoming a new nation. That's twisted from passages in Matthew 24 about the budding of the fig tree and so forth. Lord willing, we'll look at that next week. The nation, Jesus said, would be destroyed and the kingdom would be handed over to a new kingdom, to a new nation, and that's the church. This condemnation of Israel as apostate and, uh, reprobate and apostate is represented by our Lord's cursing the fig tree for lack of fruit and the cutting off of the olive branches because of unbelief in Romans chapter in Romans chapter uh, 11. It was such a radical change in redemptive history that Jesus dedicates a very lengthy discourse about the exalted Messiah himself destroying the nation of Israel in Matthew 24, which I believe is repeated in Mark 13 and Luke, is it Luke 20? This is the great tragedy of Israel. They answered the promises and prophecies together with the amazing presentation of grace and mercy by Jesus and the apostles with unbelief, hostility, indifference, and bloody persecution. And of course, what aggravated that was it was accompanied by mighty miracles that were seen by all. So it, it, it aggravates it when you have obvious miracles right in their face and they still deny it. Remember, they, after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, he'd been dead four days, he's, he already started to stink. They wanted to put Lazarus to death because people were becoming Christians because they saw Lazarus. God's wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. 
because they not only rejected their Messiah, but they murdered him using the hands of heathen Gentile idolaters. So all of this raises the logical question. <clears throat> Has God totally rejected the Jews? Has God cast away his people completely? And the apostle emphatically rejects such thinking. He answers, certainly not. It's very emphatic. He then proceeds to not only give a number of reasons as to why God has not totally rejected Israel, but also why things happened in a certain way. First, Paul knows the rejection is not total, for some Jews, including himself, are saved. Verse 1, he answers, Certainly not, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul notes, look, I'm a full-blooded Jew. Descended from Abraham, descended from Benjamin. So one must not conclude that God has fully rejected ethnic Israel. And he emphasizes his ethnic Jewishness in three identifications. He's an Israelite. He descended from the seed of Abraham. And he is of the tribe of Benjamin. So there can be no question whatsoever that ethnic Jews are being saved by God. They are. By implication, we could add that the apostles were, all the apostles were Jews. The first 70 preachers sent out by Jesus were all Jews, Luke 10, 1 and 17. And after Pentecost, many Jews and proselytes were saved and joined the Christian church. The day of Pentecost, you got one instance, you got 3,000. Another instance, you got 5,000 being baptized and joining the church. And James presided over the Jerusalem church. There were so many churches that they had the equivalent of a whole presbytery within Jerusalem and the surrounding neighborhoods. <clears throat> Note the words of James and the elders to Paul in Acts 21, 17 to 20. And when he had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James. And all the elders were present. And when they heard it, that is Paul's report, they glorified the Lord. And they said to him, you see, brethren, how many myriads, and that's what they would say for thousands, how many thousands of Jews there are who have believed. And they are all zealous for the law. So scholars believe there are probably about 25,000 Jewish Christians within the precincts of Jerusalem and the surrounding towns. And they had a whole presbytery. Second. Paul makes a comparison with Israel's Old Testament history, noting the biblical teaching regarding the remnant and its relation to foreknowledge. Verses 2 to 6. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know the scripture says of Elijah how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and tore down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men, who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. So here, Paul proves his point by noting the distinction between Israel as the whole nation, what we would call uh, the visible church, and Israel, the remnant 
what we would call the invisible church, or those who are truly saved, who really have faith. And these are those of foreknowledge. They are, and that simply means God loved them beforehand. God loved them before the foundation of the world. And this has always been the case. The example of the period where Elijah was preaching is set forth by comparison. <clears throat> and you're familiar with, this is the, the reign of Ahab and Jezebel. And the nation was so wicked and apostate at that time that Elijah thought he was the only true Yahweh worshiper left. But God revealed to him that there were thousands of true believers in Israel. The situation in the first century AD is really not that different than the situation when Ahab and Jezebel ruled in Israel. In the days of Elijah, the vast majority of Israelites did not have faith in the true God. They worshipped Baal. They rejected true worship for a grotesque, evil fertility cult. So you see Elijah, he's completely dejected. All of his own work and that of the other prophets was apparently utterly in vain. Things were at a very low ebb. So God needed to encourage him that a remnant existed. Don't give up. Don't stop. I know it looks horrible, but I, there's a lot of people. Here Paul picks up an argument that he presented in chapter 9. In verses 6 to 8 we read, But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. So there's national Israel, what we call the visible church, and spiritual Israel. There are those descended from Abraham that are non-elect, and there are those who are elect. They are loved beforehand, before the creation of the world. And the others are not loved beforehand and are left to perish in their sins. They do not receive the gift of regeneration and thus are blind to spiritual truth and hostile to it. In fact, they hate the gospel of pure grace. God knows that as he loves those who are his sheep, those given to the Son to redeem. And that's very clear in the gospel of John. In the midst of widespread apostasy, he gives them the gifts of faith and repentance, and he preserves them through thick and thin to the very end. And by the way, regarding this passage, Martin Luther and John Calvin are totally in agreement. They're totally in agreement. Luther was excellent on the doctrines of grace. It's only later that the Lutherans shift to Arminianism and get corrupted. <clears throat> now, this doctrine of foreordination which simply means the love beforehand or predestination is hated by most evangelicals and thus redefined to mean that God loves those and only God chooses those who first choose him. And that's what I was taught when I was an evangelical. They taught, well, for, that just means God looks down the corridors of time and here's Bob and Joe and Bob chooses Christ and Joe does not. So God elects Bob because he chose Christ. He chooses those who first choose him through an act of the free, unencumbered will. In this scheme, people are not elected or really chosen by God, but they elect themselves. God looks down the quarters of time, and he sees who believe in Jesus, and on that basis he chooses them. So this doctrine is not only radically unscriptural, but it is patently absurd. 
If men save themselves with an act of the free will, then God's election is essentially meaningless. It is, it is an election. It's just simply God recognizing what man does. The point that Paul is making that was already discussed in chapter 9 to a degree is that national election, the visible church, must not be confused with individual election. National election never guaranteed individual election. If your, Christians are, if your parents are Christians, even if they're real Christians, even if they're rock solid, that does not guarantee that you're going to be a Christian. In fact, throughout most of Israel's history, the remnant of true believers who really followed God was a very small minority of the population as a whole. Remember, millions of people left Egypt. Therefore, the objection which says, how can Jesus really be the Messiah and the Christians really be God's people when the political leaders, the religious teachers, and the vast majority of the people in our nation reject Jesus and his church? This could be applied throughout the whole Old Testament. And that's one of the Jewish objections. Oh, come on, Jesus is just this teacher of a small sect within Judaism. And Judaism rejected him, so he's obviously not the right guy. And that argument could be applied to all of their history. They rejected Elijah, they rejected Isaiah, they rejected Jeremiah, they rejected the prophets. They wanted to get rid of Moses and replace Moses. In the days of the flood, this only one family believed in God and followed him. A whole generation except Moses, Aaron, Caleb, and Joshua died in the wilderness as a judgment for unbelief. A whole, the whole people. Only their children went in. In the period of the judges, the vast majority of Israelites followed syncretism and the fertility cults. But there was a faithful remnant. Throughout the era of the prophets, most people followed false prophets and false teachers. They followed wicked kings, and they hated the true prophets of God. Idolatry was rampant, but there was a remnant. Note the words of Isaiah 10.22. For though your people, O Israel, be as the sand of the sea, a remnant of them will return. God was warning Israel even before the captivity that they must not misinterpret the promise to Abraham. They were not to say to themselves, we have Abraham as our father, as though mere physical descent from Abraham and membership in the nation of Israel was sufficient to guarantee salvation. The remnant and the remnant alone would repent and return because they alone had faith. It's all about faith. It's all about faith. And they had faith because of the electing grace of God. They were loved and chosen before the foundation of the world. Jesus in Matthew 23 compared the Jews to their unbelieving, persecuting forefathers. He said in verses 36 to, uh, 34 and 36, Therefore indeed I will send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. That on you may come all the righteous blood, all the righteous blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Accord, assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Okay, so there's, there's the first two points. 
and then we have Paul's theological application, which is really kind of a parenthesis in Paul's argument here. He stops and he wants to talk about grace. Paul concludes this, this comparison of current circumstances with Israel's own history by exalting the grace of God. So he stops in the midst of this to focus on a theological application. And here's what he says. Even so then at this present time there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, works is no longer work. That's uh, verse 6. Paul has repeated this point in the first five chapters of this epistle. And he brings it up again because Pharisaical Judaism looked at the scriptures and all of reality through the lens of human merit. You are saved by turning over a new leaf and trying to keep the law. And of course, whenever men try to be saved by the law, what do they do? They have to externalize it and make it easier to keep because nobody can keep the law. That's quite obvious. And that's why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount applies the law to the heart, to the speech, to one's thinking. And once you apply the law to your heart, you know, you may have never committed adultery, but you certainly had impure thoughts. You may have never murdered a man, but you, you might have insulted somebody. So once you do that, you can see that no one keeps the law. <clears throat> Paul is constantly fighting against the heresy of salvation by works. The doctrine of God, sovereign's, his sovereign electing grace, destroys the pharisaical paradigm and also destroys the humanism that is the foundation of Arminianism, which is the cornerstone of so-called modern evangelicalism, which is not really evangelical. The philosophical basis behind Arminianism is that we must assert that all men have a free, unencumbered will to choose Christ. In other words, according to their presuppositions, we are all saved because of the self-generated faith, the self-generated faith, or we all receive an equal amount of the Spirit, Spirit's help, but this help is not efficacious. So Jesus did his thing. He's up there in heaven. He's waiting for you to choose him, and he can't do anything about it. He can send the Spirit. The Spirit can try to work on you a little bit, but the Spirit cannot open your blind eyes and cause you to believe. That's the Arminian view. <clears throat> Consequently, according to their doctrine, men are saved because of faith, not through the instrument of faith, which is a gift of God. There's a huge difference between being saved because of faith rather than faith as a gift, which is an instrument. They deny the very essence of grace, which is unmerited, undeserved divine favor to those who deserve God's wrath. It's not simply God being gracious or kind to people. It's God being uh, merciful and gracious to people who deserve to go to hell. If grace is conditioned in any way by human performance, or by the will of man impelling to action, then grace ceases to be grace. Paul wants us to understand the true character of grace. Now, Paul does not stop with election and the importance of pure grace, but goes on to talk about reprobation. The others were hardened. The apostle makes it crystal clear that this hardening is an act of God. 
The King James, the rest were blinded, means literally they were hardened. They were rendered insensible to the truth and the beauty and goodness of the true gospel. They were in unbelief and rebellion against God already. So Yahweh abandoned them to the hardness of their own hearts. The punishment for the rejecting of God's revealed truth in order to follow one's own philosophy and rebellion is to be given over to it. And the more you understand this doctrine, the more you'll understand why our society is so insane. Why people believe in such, you know, obviously the democratic-controlled cities are dangerous and crazy. That you would uh, criminalize the people trying to stop theft in your store, and you would decriminalize the theft and, and let them back out to commit more crimes. We see something similar to Paul's condemnation of the Gentiles in Romans 1, 21 to 25. They became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. Say, why is homosexuality on the rise? Why is the transgendered perversion and transvestitism and all this insane sexual perversion greatly on the rise in our day? Because men are wicked idolaters and they reject the word of God. The election of sinful men to eternal life in Christ is a sovereign act of God that flows solely from his good pleasure. It's, doesn't, it's not because of anything in us. It resides in God, not men. But his punishment of the non-elect, well determined beforehand, is founded upon real guilt for real sins committed by valid secondary agents. Okay, you got to understand predestination. God controls everything that comes to pass, but he does so in such a way that he's not responsible for evil in the world, and he's not responsible for your sin. You are. That's what the Bible teaches. And any way to get around what the Bible teaches results in crazy heresies. If they are not saved by God's grace, they are punished and hardened in their sinful rebellion and finally perish in their sins. Men are sinful and willfully commit sin. Their sins and habitual rebellion are the cause of their destruction. Predestination is clearly taught in Scripture and cannot be denied without utterly denying the very nature of God. But the Bible also very clearly teaches the validity of man as a secondary agent. God is not the author of evil, and is not responsible for the evil acts of men. When men perish, it is by the appointment of God, as Jude 4 says. They were, lo they were long ago marked out for this condemnation. But their condemnation is totally their own fault. They voluntarily choose sin, rebellion, and are guilty. Men choose human autonomy over Christ and God's law, and God gives them over to their own foolishness, their own evil, their blindness, their irrationality, and stupidity. Just look at what's going on in our nation. Our political leaders could not be more evil and stupid and blind. This doctrine explains why the West is on a spiritual downward spiral into madness and self-destruction.
as Christians. We must accept foreordination or predestination because it is emphasized by Paul in order to teach us the doctrine of salvation by grace alone, as of course, the sovereignty of God as well. There's a reason he talks about predestination and foreordination. He wants to emphasize God's grace. That's why he does it. The Arminian must do great violence to the word of God and logic to avoid this crucial doctrine. They posit a number of heretical ideas to avoid it. Number one, and I've heard this in sermons when I was an evangelical, they teach that God voluntarily limited his own sovereign power so man could have a truly free will. You know, man could have a sphere of autonomy apart from God's power. The problem with this teaching is that God cannot deny himself. He cannot stop being sovereign. He cannot cease being God. To say that God voluntarily limited his sovereignty is to say that God could deny himself being God. It's impossible. Number two, they deny the total inability of man to see or understand spiritual truth and recover himself from his own depravity, guilt, and innate spiritual deadness. They don't teach total inability. That's one of their problems. Once you understand total inability, you have to believe in sovereign grace. Three, they teach that election is God's response to man's faith, not that election leads to regeneration and faith. So, in their view, the divine creator is conditioned and controlled by his own finite, fallen, guilty, spiritually dead creatures. That's a crazy doctrine, this idea that God looked down the quarters of time. And then four, they separate regeneration, new spiritual life, and sanctification from union with Christ, Romans chapter 6 and other places, and thus not only turn regeneration to God's response to man's faith, that's the view of Billy Graham, that's the view of evangelicals, God regenerates those who first choose him, which is completely at odds with John chapter 3, and of course Ephesians chapter 2, but make faith an autonomous act of the will, not a gift of grace from God. If regeneration is something based on the redemptive work of Christ, which is what the Bible explicitly teaches, then it is a gift earned, achieved by Christ. That's the whole argument of Romans 6. If faith and repentance are gifts of God, which are received in regeneration, which is what the scriptures explicitly teach, then salvation by faith in Christ assumes foreordination and election. You know the passage in Acts, all who were ordained to eternal life believed. And I didn't, bother, I didn't have time to look it up, but there's passages, Ephesians chapter 2, I think it's 2, 8 or 9, that it says explicitly, Paul says explicitly, faith is a gift of God. Yes, it's your faith. You have to believe. God doesn't believe for you. You believe. But the reason you believe is because God regenerates your heart, enabling you to believe. <clears throat> the doctrine of grace alone is dependent on Paul's view, which has come to be called Calvinism or Augustinianism. The Arminian or semi-Pelagian view, which is syncretism between humanism which is the exaltation and glorification of man, it's a syncretism between that and the Bible's teaching. It turns God's grace from an unmerited, undeserved divine favor to those who deserve only wrath and condemnation into something men deserve, 
by an autonomous act of the will. Faith becomes a work that merits grace instead of a gift that simply grasps salvation. Okay, the reformers, all the reformed theologians, all good theologians emphasize that faith is purely instrumental. Now, Paul establishes this doctrine with two quotes from the Old Testament. The first is from Deuteronomy 29.4, which is similar to Isaiah 6.9. This is a description of the hardening process. The people are given a spirit of stupor. They are handed over to the spiritual and moral dullness. Their hearts are dulled and made insensitive by their habitual rebellion and commitment to a false worldview. Unbelief results in a hardening, and this hardening process process produces an even stronger, firmer, more fanatical unbelief. Try witnessing in a Jewish community. I've done it when I was in seminary in Philadelphia. Those, those Jewish neighborhoods above Philadelphia. You know, they, they act like you're insulting them to their face. What are you doing witness to me about Jesus? I'm a Jew. I reject Jesus. I don't believe in Jesus. Get off my porch. The result is they have eyes that cannot see and ears that cannot hear. The evidence from the Old Testament that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah is so clear and overwhelming that only someone totally blind and deaf to the truth would reject it. And I have an article on my website somewhere where I, I go through all the past. I go through a bunch of past. I have an article basically witnessing to Jews. And the evidence for Jesus being the Messiah is just mind-boggling. We're not talking about a couple passages. We're talking about dozens and dozens and dozens of clear passages. The majority of Jews could not see the grace, wisdom, and truth of the gospel and thus clinged stubbornly to their sin-stained works. They shut their eyes and would not see. And then God in his righteous judgment blinded their eyes so that they could not see. He punished them by handing them over to what they wanted. So it's not, people, predestination is, oh, God's not fair. Bob wants to be saved and God won't let him. No, God hates, God. Bob hates God and Bob uh, despises the truth and God simply hands him over to what he wants. The Jews had rejected Jesus Christ and the righteousness of God apart from works. And even though they were evil and rebellious people, they continued to attempt to establish their own righteousness by the law. The second passage is based on the Greek Septuagint rendering of Psalm 69, 22-23. In this Messianic Psalm, David is making an imprecatory prayer against his enemies. We have here the same teaching as before with the added element that they deserve this judgment due to their persecution of the saints. They made their table. That was just something normally good or a blessing, the their table. They made it into a snare or stumbling block to them. Make their table, excuse me. Here the meaning is not literal food, but the teaching they are receiving. Their teaching is poison. It is an occasion of their gross sin and their, their curse, the curse of sin brings. And then Paul establishes the following theological facts. So, summary. A, the elective obtain salvation. B, God hardens and blinds those who have hardened and blinded themselves. C, such wicked rebels get exactly what they deserve. Their sin, rebellion, hardness, and blindness is rewarded with sin, rebellion, hardness, and blindness. A sign of spiritual blindness and being hardened in rebellion, of course, is being in love with the world and hating biblical Christianity. 
That's why you see these atheists on YouTube. They delight in it. They despise God. God is still gathering Jews as a remnant into the body of Christ. So these verses are not speaking of ethnic Israel as a whole, but the majority of ethnic Israel. The non-elective Israel. When Paul wrote these words, most churches had both Jews and Gentiles in them. Remember the book of Acts. Paul goes, preaches to the Jews first. He gets kicked out of the synagogue. Some of the Jews are converted. They follow him. And then third, Israel's rejection of Christ and the gospel is part of God's sovereign plan to spread the gospel to the Gentiles and make the Jews jealous. In Romans 11, 11 24, we read this. I say that they have stumbled that they should fall. Certainly not. But through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, if their fall is richest for the world and their failure richest for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. Now, I jump down to 15. For if, they ca for if they're being cast away as the reconciling of the world, what would their acceptance be? From life, be but life from the dead. For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them, and with them become a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree. There's not two people of God, there's one people, represented by the one tree. And the way you get on that tree is with faith. Well then, because of unbelief they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Therefore consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell severity, but on toward you goodness. If you continue in his goodness, otherwise you will be cut off. And I'll stop there, because that's really application, and I'm, I didn't get to the application there. The Jews rejected their, of their Messiah with something God intended to bless the whole Gentile world. This is always part of God's plan. God's not taken by surprise, like dispensationalism. Dispensationalism, God has plan A. It doesn't work, so he turns to plan B. That's not how things work. They teach that the Jews rejected Jesus uh, as a worldly political king. So God had to go to plan B, which was the church. And they call the church a parenthesis in God's plan, completely separate from Israel. And this view, according to Paul, is completely false. For one reason, the Jews rejected Jesus because he refused their concept of a worldly military dictatorship. In addition, remember they wanted to make him king and he snuck off? It wasn't that they wanted to make him king, but their kind of king, not a spiritual king. In addition, the stumbling of Israel served two purposes. First, this humiliation and rejection was necessary for the crucifixion of Christ to take place, and it is Jesus' atoning work that saves the whole world, including all the Gentile nations. Our Lord died and rose from the dead, and the gospel is to be preached to every nation, people, and tribe on planet Earth. But that's, that's not the focus of Paul, even though that's true. The second view, which, which is what Paul has in mind, is that the rejection of the gospel on the part of the Jews and their persecution of the church was the means of its wider and more rapid spread among the Gentiles. And this point is proved by the history of the church in the book of Acts. Paul's pattern was to reach out to the Jews with the gospel first in every city. But once they rejected his preaching, which is almost universal, he would focus his attention on the Gentiles. Here's Acts 13, 45 to 46 and 49 to 51. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and, contradicted and, and were contradicting and blaspheming. They opposed the things spoken by Paul. 
Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. But the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city, raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from the region. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium. So the persecution of Paul and Barnabas, the persecution of the first preachers, led to the more rapid spread of the gospel. And of course to the Jew first and to the Gentile. Near the end of the book of Acts, when Paul was arrested and imprisoned because of Jewish persecution, he says, after quoting Isaiah 6-9 regarding the Jews' blindness, deafness, dullness, and refusal to repent, here's what he says, Therefore let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will hear it. Acts 28-28. In the decades following the resurrection of Christ, Paul would go to a city, he'd first preach in the synagogue. If they didn't have a synagogue, the Jews would meet down by the river. That's the case of Lydia. And he'd go to the group of Jews that met down by the river. Usually some Jews and proselytes would be converted, but the leadership and the majority would not. And it's so funny he mentions the, 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 the prominent women. Uh, when I candidated in churches all over the place, uh, these old little churches in the country, the women made all the decisions. The husbands would go ask the women what they wanted to do, and the women would say, we don't like this guy or whatever. They would oppose Paul and the gospel and drive him out. He would then focus on the Gentiles, and a church would be established with mostly Gentiles and some Jews. Over time, the word spread throughout the Roman Empire. <clears throat> um, the word spread throughout the Roman Empire about Paul among all the synagogues, and Paul was not only forbidden to preach, but the Jews pressured the Roman authorities to persecute the Christians. So a time came when the Jewish synagogues got the word, don't let these Christian guys in your church, in your synagogue to preach. Don't let them preach in your church. That only happened in that first generation. You go try preaching in a synagogue now, you might end up in the hospital. You'd certainly be thrown out. So by the destruction of Israel in AD 70, most churches were composed of Gentiles. The Jews' blindness and rejection of the gospel was in God's providence a means of actually helping the gospel spread out among the Gentiles. Their murder of the Messiah and persecution of Christians led to God's judgment against them in AD 70, which further separated Jewish communities from the gospel and the church. In Revelation 2.9, Jesus calls the Pharisaical Jews the synagogue of Satan. These are, that's Jesus talking. In 1 Thessalonians 2.14-16, we read, For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God which are in Judea in, in Christ Jesus. For you also suffer the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans who killed both the Lord Jesus Christ and their own prophets, and have persecuted us, and do not please God, and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles, that they may be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. It's not anti-Semitism. That's anti-unbeliefism. What Paul says of the Jews is true of the West today, where these nations have rejected the Bible, they've rejected Christ, they've rejected the Word of God, they've rejected the Gospel for secular humanism, and they're reaping what they are sowing. Everything's going to collapse. The calamity of the Jews has resulted in a great blessing among the Gentiles. 
While the Jews turned inward and developed a sophisticated theology of unbelief and hatred toward Christ, one by one the nations of Europe were converted to, to Christ and the gospel. And the, <coughs> the gross oppressive paganism of Greece and Rome was replaced by Christendom. And with all the faults of Rome, Christian Europe was incredibly better than pagan Europe. Pagan Europe had human sacrifice almost universally. Sacrificing of infants, sacrificing of young virgins. It was horrible. Paul, speaking by the Holy Spirit, tells us that God has an overriding and overruling design with Israel's rejection and fall. Their stumbling and rejection of Jesus as Savior not only serves God's purpose in redeeming the Gentile world, but also serves a role in directing Israel back to God. It is to broke Israel to jealousy. Although the unbelief of Israel is ordained to promote the salvation of the Gentiles, this great success among the Gentiles in God's plan does not stop or impede the salvation of Israel by Christ. It rather at some time will promote their salvation. So God's plan is benevolent, merciful, and gracious toward ethnic Israel. Here's what Matthew Henry says. I like this. God will have a church in the world. We'll have the wedding furnished with guests. And if one will not come, another will. The Jews had the refusal, and so the tender came to the Gentiles. See how infinite wisdom brings light out of darkness, good out of evil, meat out of the uh, eater, and sweetness out of the strong? End of quote. And we anticipate Paul's exclamation at the end of this section, verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. God knows exactly what he's doing. This shows incredible wisdom on the part of God. Now this raises the obvious question, what is meant by jealousy? Well, the word jealousy, when used in a good sense, as it is here, basically means to emulate. The Jews will see the godliness, prosperity, economic freedom, and great blessings that Christian nations have, and they will want to embrace Christ and adopt a Christian law order. Okay, this is very post-millennial, by the way. Romans is very post-millennial. This obviously has not yet occurred, and it will not occur until there is a revival of biblical Christianity. The Jews will be excited and stimulated to follow the gospel, not the wicked heresies of Rome, or the crass humanism and the heresies of modern evangelicalism, where they focus on entertainment and they focus on having whiter teeth and a bigger car and a nicer house instead of the gospel. There must be a revival of the attainments of the Reformation. So ironically, what the Jews were to do in Deuteronomy 4.6, where God says, if you're covenantally faithful, if you are faithful to my law, You'll be an example to the surrounding pagan nations, and they're going to want to worship me. They're going to want. They're going to look at you and go, "Wow, look how great this nation is." Maybe we should follow their laws. Maybe we should worship their god. <clears throat> this will occur in reverse as at the proper time comes, and the Holy Spirit opens their eyes. So, if the church gets its act together, and we covenant and we have whole nations become Christian, the Jews will want to emulate that. Fourth. Paul predicts that after the Jews decline due to the disobedience and unbelief, a time of fullness will come. In verses 11 and 15 we read, Now if their fall, and the word in Greek is literally trespass, is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? 
and then jumping down to 15. For if they're being cast away as the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Israel as a covenant nation, as a majority, as a distinct body of people, have been cast away, rejected, and punished by God for their unbelief, the rejection of Jesus Christ and the gospel, and their hostility to the new covenant church. This rejection, we have noted, was not total in that a remnant of Jews are being saved, and this rejection served a purpose in spreading the gospel over planet Earth among the Gentiles. But, Paul says, a time of revival among the Jews, in a broad sense, is coming. The difficulty in noting exactly what this means comes from Paul's figurative expressions used to describe these, this great revival of the true religion. It is called Israel's fullness, verse 12. Their acceptance by God, verse 15. And then jumping way down to uh, verse 26. And so all Israel will be saved. What do these things mean? Well, let's find out. It occurs not near the beginning of the Christ's kingdom, but after it has grown greatly and leavened all the Gentile nations. It obviously has not yet occurred. In that there are very few Jewish Christians currently, and Jews are still very hostile to Christianity. I know, I try witnessing to Jews. They're pretty friendly until you start talking about Jesus of Nazareth and him being the Christ. Preaching the gospel publicly in Israel is against the law, by the way. It's against the law. And if one preaches the gospel publicly, he will likely end up in the hospital. I'm not kidding. I've seen situations in... There was a Christian missionary in Jerusalem where a bunch of Orthodox guys came over and beat the pulp out of him and they completely trashed his apartment. And they left a note there, you better move. So they're still persecuting Christians and it's against the law. Now they like evangelicals because they're pro-Israel, but that doesn't mean they like the gospel. So let's look carefully at these expressions and do our best to determine what Paul means. The first, fullness, pleroma, you've heard of that word before, refers to something that is full or complete. A full basket of grain, a full cup of milk, or it's used when crops are fully ripe and ready to harvest. There is a, uh, in a sense, a full number, since it is contrasted with the fullness of the Gentiles in verse 25. So the key Understanding the meaning of fullness here is to keep in mind that it is set up as an antithesis of Israel in their state of rebellion, blindness, and deadness. Okay, keep in mind the context. Instead of a people known for unbelief and hatred of Christianity, they will be known for their faith in Christ, their attainment of salvation through faith in their Messiah, their restoration of the blessings of God's kingdom. So no word could serve to convey the thought of the thoroughness and completeness of this contrast better than the term fullness. If the term fullness here conveys the idea of completeness, that is a complete transformation of the Jews as a people, from one state to another, then we must look forward to a restoration of the Jewish people to faith in Christ, the possession of the kingdom in Christ's church, and the blessings of the covenant. Now, this does not say anything about Israel as a distinct nation, you know, with their own borders and laws. I didn't deal with that today. I'll, I should probably, if I deal with application, I'll deal with that next week. That's not taught here. They're talking about the Jews as a people. Because there's Jews all over the world. I think there's tons of Jews in New York City, for example. 
Nothing is said here about the Jews possessing Judea. That is not taught here. And the Jews are back, grafted back into the one olive tree of faith along with all other true Christians. So they're, they're, they're going to join the church of Christ. They're not a separate people, but it's talking about their conversion to Christ. The expression, life from the dead in verse 15, supports this interpretation. The revival and acceptance of the Jews by God will result in a great revival among the Gentiles. The restoration of the Jews into God's favor by their bowing the knee to Christ will occasion the revival and spread of the true Christian religion throughout the whole Gentile world. Okay, the, the rising up, that in the context there, if you look at it in the Greek, it's talking about the Gentiles. The conversion of the Jews will be attended by the most glorious consequences for the whole world. The unstated implication here is that the Gentile world will need a revival by the time the Jews are converted. A popular interpretation is that once the masses of Jews are converted, then comes the resurrection and the consummation of Christ's kingdom. But it is very unlikely that Paul is speaking figuratively and not literally here. Excuse me, it is very likely that Paul is speaking figuratively and not literally. There will be a spiritual regeneration of the Jewish people. He's not talking about a literal resurrection here. Of course, that's about the Gentiles. And this brings us to the final expression in verse 26, and we're getting kind of long here. And so all Israel shall be saved. There are basically three interpretations of this passage. The first, which is that of Augustine and Calvin, which is a minority view, is that all Israel means that all the elect or true people of God consisting of both Jews and Gentiles will be saved. This view is almost certainly incorrect in that Paul supports this statement with a prophecy from Isaiah 27.9 about the repentance and conversion of Jacob. So he's still talking about the Jews, ethnic Jews. So it's, he didn't stop here and conclude by, oh, God's going to save everybody, both Jews and Gentiles. Paul has just spent virtually the whole chapter discussing the future of ethnic Israel or Israel as a people. So we, that view is wrong. The second view, which is much more popular and is common among Lutheran and almost all Dutch expositors, Burkhoff, Bavink, Ritterboss, is that all Israel will be saved simply means that all the elect within Israel will be saved. In other words, the concept of the remnant who are saved out of the mass of unbelieving Israel continues and is concluded with verse 26. Now, while there's no question, we can agree that all the elect will be saved. That's obvious. That's just... You know, that's obvious. <clears throat> Paul, in this context, has been focusing on the Jewish people as a whole body, a people, a nation, a community. To say that a remnant will be saved when Paul has just been setting forth a massive revival after the time of the Gentiles has been fulfilled does not fit the theme, purpose, or context of the passage. He's not talking about the remnant anymore. He's talking about the Jews as a whole people. So this interpretation ignores the contrast between the remnant discussed in verse 5 and the mass of ethnic Israel in verses 12 to 16. The third view, which I believe is the correct view, which makes the most sense and is the general view of virtually all the Puritans and the early Presbyterians, who, by the way, were all post-millennialists, is that all Israel means the whole people or nation. Now, remember when Scripture uses the word all, it doesn't mean all without exception. There's not, going to, not every Jew in the world is going to be converted to Christ. But it means the majority of Jews will become Christians at some point in the future. There's going to be a massive revival of the Jews. 
How wonderful will that be? The Jews as a people are now rejected because of unbelief and sinful rebellion. But God will bring about a great revival to ethnic Israel, and they will once again be God's people in Christ's church. And then we'll end with just a quote. It's kind of a long quote, but Murray on this. I've got, I've got like 25 commentaries on Romans, and John Murray is, on this section is the, by far the best. Here's what he says for about verses 26 and 27. And so, which verse 26 begins, indicates that the proposition about to be stated is either one parallel to two or one that flows from the revelation enunciated in the preceding verse. It means, and accordingly, continuing the thought of what precedes or draws out its implications. All Israel shall be saved of the proposition thus involved. It should be apparent from both the proximate and less proximate context in this portion of the epistle that it is exegetically impossible to give Israel in this verse any other denotation than that which belongs to the term throughout this chapter. There is the sustained contrast between Israel and the Gentiles, as has been demonstrated in the exposing preceding. Whether denotation could be given to Israel in the preceding verse. It is of ethnic Israel, Paul is speaking, and Israel could not possibly include Gentiles. He's talking against Calvin there. In that event, the preceding verse would be reduced to absurdity. And since verse 26 is parallel, or correlative statement, the denotation of Israel must be the same as in verse 25. The immediate context demands that it's ethnic Israel. Continuing. <clears throat> the interpretation by which all Israel is taken to mean the elective Israel, now here's talking about the Lutheran and the Dutch view, the true is Israel in contrast with Israel after the flesh, in accordance with the distinction drawn in 9.6, is not tenable for several reasons. Number one, while it is true that all the elect of Israel, the true Israel, will be saved, there is no necessary and, and patent to truth that to assert the same here would be have no particular relevance to what the apostle, apostle's governing interest in this section of the epistle is. Why would he bring that up? He's not even talking about that right now. It doesn't make sense. Furthermore, while it is true that the fact of election with the certainty of its saving issue is a truth of revelation, it is not in the category that would require the special kind of revelation intimidated in the words, this mystery, verse 25. Okay, it's just an obvious statement of truth. When he talks about a mystery, it's something new that you're learning. And since verse 26 is so closely related to verse 25, the assurance that all Israel shall be saved is simply another way of stating what is expressly called this mystery in verse 25, or at least a way of drawing out its implications. That all the elect will be saved does not have the particularity that mystery in this instance involves. Number two, the salvation of all the elect of Israel affirms or implies no more than the salvation of the remnant of Israel in all generations. But verse 26 brings to a climax a sustained argument that goes far beyond that doctrine. Paul is concerned with the unfolding of God's plan of salvation in history and with a climactic development for Jew and Gentile that will ensue. It is in terms of this historical perspective that the clause in question is to be understood. Okay, once again, the broad context, it demands it. Three, verse 26 is in close consequent with verse 25. The main thesis of verse 25 is that the hardening of Israel is to terminate and that Israel is to be restored. That is but another way of affirming what has been called Israel's fullness in verse 12. The receiving in verse 15 and the engrafting again in verses 23 and 24. To regard the climactic statement, all Israel shall be saved as having reference to anything else than this precise datum would be exegetical violence. End of quote. That's just fantastic. He systematically destroys all the false interpretations of the passage. 
and I have the highest respect for Burkhoff and Ritterboss and Hendrickson and all these guys, and and of course my Luther, the Lutheran commentaries are are generally excellent, but they're wrong. They're wrong. I know you have to be a post-millennialist to believe this, because it just seems if you've ever talked to Jews, and I've had close Jewish friends, I do know Jewish Christians, but I've had close Jew, Jewish friends that were not Christians, and man. You want to get their feathers up, start talking about Jesus. They hate the gospel. They hate the doctrines of grace. They believe in salvation by works. Look at this. Who's the popular talker? Uh, ben Shapiro. The guy's brilliant. Now that... Rush, now that uh, uh, what's, who's the guy who died who smokes cigars all the time? Rush Limb, now that Rush Limbaugh's dead, I listen to him. Uh, because he, there's really not much on the radio. The guy's brilliant when he talks about politics. He's brilliant when he analyzes the situation in Israel. He's brilliant. But when he talks about the Bible and the gospel, the guy's satanic to the core. He's totally blind. The Bible is, I mean, it's just not even close. The Bible has hundreds of sections that talk about Christ throughout the whole Bible. And if you don't believe in blood atonement, that's the thing. If the Jews were consistent, they'd have to, re they'd have to rebuild their temple and have sacrifices. They'd have to follow the law. Because the only way to remove sin is by blood. And they deny that. They say, oh, that's not important at all. The only way to get rid of sin is to turn over a new leaf and to live according to the law. That is satanic to the core. For you all know, we all know, if you're honest with yourself, you've sinned thousands of times. You may not go out and commit adultery, but a girl rides by and her PE shorts are too tight, you might have some impure thoughts. Or you might get angry without cause. We sin thousands of times. We need the blood of Christ. But we'll stop there and... I'll see maybe next week we can deal with some more application. Because Paul has application in there. I, I, I didn't deal with the application. Where he warns the Gentiles, this is a warning to you. God broke them off because they didn't believe. And if you don't believe, he's going to break you off. The Roman Catholic Church is not the Church of Christ. It's an apostate, wicked cult that worships the Virgin Mary, that worships idols, that teaches salvation by the works of the law. You have to have faith in Christ as revealed in the scriptures. And if you don't, you're not part of that olive tree. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much. What an encouraging word in, our, in this time of incredible declension. Israel will be saved. You've promised it. And therefore, we'll pray for it every day. We pray for that great revival. We pray for that great revival so we can have a great revival among the Gentiles who have rejected your dear son and rejected your holy word for secular humanism and Satanism, sexual perversion. Protect your people in this coming time of judgment, Lord, when war abounds, when all the economies of the world are on the precipice of, of a complete fall because men love to print money, to buy votes. We pray for your sanctification, Lord, that we could follow your son fully. In Jesus' name, amen.